Hey there, and welcome to episode 51. Thanks so much for hitting that arrow that points to the right or that download button to listen to my ramblings about all things movie-related. And if you've been listening to this show for however long, then thank you for coming back. And if you're a first-time listener, then welcome, and thank you for checking this out. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. This episode is going to take a deep dive into what is arguably the mother of all horror films, certainly the blueprint for horror movies that came after it. I speak, of course, of the landmark phenomenon that is the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock film Psycho, loosely adapted by the relatively thin novel by Robert Bloch, which in turn was inspired by the real-life serial killer and cannibal Ed Gein. And if you've never seen Psycho, but you're eager to check out this 62-year-old masterpiece, then double thumbs up and go treat yourself. But if you hear the number 62 and subsequently think to yourself, watch a movie that old? Then keep in mind the words of actress Lauren Bacall, who once said, It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. After premiering on June 16th in New York City and August 4th in the UK, Psycho released nationwide in Canada on August 17, September 8 in the US, and September 15 in the UK. It went on to receive four Academy Award nominations, Art Direction, Cinematography, Supporting Actress for Janet Lee, and Director for Alfred Hitchcock. It did not win any of them, but who cares, because its legacy has withstood the test of time. Hitchcock never topped himself financially after this one. Ironically, it was made on a shoestring budget and grossed over $32 million at the box office. Not bad when you remember that this was in $1960. I'm thrilled to be able to say that joining me on this week's episode is a return guest. His name is Chris, and he was on before on episode 42 when he and I looked back at Martin Scorsese's The Departed, He's the host of the film podcast, The Movie Psycho. That's a self-referential title, not a podcast where he talks about this movie every single time. So it's pretty fitting that he'd come back for this particular film, given the title of his show. The gleeful abandon was writ large on our faces, as you'll be able to tell in a moment. It's always a lot of fun to listen to his enthusiasm for the movies and shows that he sees. So let me bring on Chris. Our talk is pre-recorded, so once it wraps up, stick around, because there'll be the results of the weekly poll, as well as the trivia question segment and listener shoutouts. And, of course, this week's trivia question. I should also issue a spoiler alert now. We're going to be talking about Psycho in depth. So if you haven't seen it or forget a lot of it and don't want anything to be given away, go watch the film first and then come on back to listen to Chris and me talk about our mutual love for and our hat-tipping to what's arguably Hitchcock's most iconic film. So, check your bags, sign that guest register, ignore the rantings and ravings of Mrs. Bates, and settle down with Norman Bates's sandwiches and milk as you take in our conversation with enough thrills, chills, behind-the-scenes fun facts, and all-around brilliant banter that'll make you feel as warm and cozy as the steady stream of warm water coming out of the shower nozzle in cabin number one. Hey, Chris, welcome back to Silver Screeners. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks for taking the time to record this, especially this being midweek and everything. Oh, that's all right. I'm always excited to be back on the show. And, you know, I love talking movies with you. And this is a good one to talk about, especially for Mother's Day. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Before we get into Psycho, I just want to make sure that I give you the chance to tell us a little bit about your podcast again, which is, oh, you say, you say what it's called. <laughs> all right. <laughs> In, <laughs> the Movie Psycho Podcast. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's perfect for this episode because we're talking about the movie Psycho. Uh, but yes, yeah, the movie Psycho podcast, it's on all the major 
podcasting services, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and all that fun stuff. Just a lighthearted show. I like to talk about movies and have fun, review a lot of them, some TV shows here and there. But mostly it's just to entertain myself <laughs> as I crack myself up. <laughs> uh, hopefully a few people laugh along with it. I know Frank does. So you can tell we've got a twisted sense of humor. But <laughs> it's just sort of a lighthearted. I don't get too crazy deep into things, but it's just a, a good half hour listen. And that's what I'm trying to go for. It's a great listen. It really is. Well, thank you. So no, it's a fun show to listen to. And you're going to be doing a, an episode in the near future on Evil Dead 2. Oh, yes. That's going to be my next episode. I'm tying it in with the new Doctor Strange movie that's coming out this weekend. It is directed by Sam Raimi, who I absolutely love. So I thought this is a good chance for me to talk about <laughs> Evil Dead 2, which is one of my favorite movies. I haven't edited that episode yet, but I've got my work cut out for me because I went off on all kinds of tangents in that one. So for anybody who wants to hear a man go slowly insane while he's talking about Evil Dead 2, much like Ash did in that cabin, tune in. <laughs> I should have it out by the end of this week. <laughs> well, speaking of cabins, let's dive into the secrets of cabin number one at the Bates <laughs> Motel. Cabin number one. Okay. 12 vacancies, so. 12 cabins. <laughs> Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, Martin Balsam. I love the fact that his last name is Balsam. It's like, you know, <laughs> here's my twin brother, Ranch, and over there we got Thousand Islands. <laughs> so. Psycho opened in New York City on June 16th of 1960. It opened here in Boston, Massachusetts on June 22nd. And then oh, it opened... Around Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> Everything revolves around... You just revolves had to plug around. that in there, didn't you? That's yes, a I did. For you. Ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, he knows I'm from the South, so he had to get a little dig in there. <laughs> so that's one thing I do love about our dynamic is that... You bust my balls for being a Yankee. I bust yours for being a Southerner. And it works. <laughs> uh, but the movie opened nationwide on September 8th. This was a watershed moment in cinematic history. We'll get into all the reasons why as we have this conversation. Let's dive right in. So first thing I want to mention, the opening credits. How badass are they? Yes, they are. With that score, that uh, Bernard Herman score, just screaming at you. And that's the perfect word, screaming. Yeah. <laughs> screaming at you. you got these opening credits, the, the words, they're all getting sliced in half. I mean, talk about yeah. visual foreshadowing of what this movie's about. Once the opening credits end, then we see this aerial shot of downtown Phoenix, Arizona. That's sort of the crazy thing about the opening credits, because you do have those strings just screaming at you and the cuts. And then it kind of goes right into almost like a soap opera moment as you go into yeah. the opening of the movie let's take a look at this picture postcard view of beautiful downtown phoenix i love the fact that the words come up on the screen friday december 11 and then you see 2 43 p.m <laughs> as long as it's established it's not 2 41 then right. i think that we're good to go you had to know by the end of the movie there's a question in your head was was it 2 43 in the afternoon for sure in 22 seconds I do have a quick trivia if I can oh. inject it in there. We got other yeah. trivia I know we're going to do, but do you know that he didn't want to have any of the time stuff on there or more to the point he didn't Hitchcock didn't want to have December on there, but when they were filming the exteriors in Arizona, it was Christmas time and all the decorations were up. So he was like, well, I guess I got to say something about it. being <laughs> <Christmas day." laughs> I just thought that was funny. <laughs> 
Sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. This is good. When Marion Crane is, you know, booking at the hell out of town, like a bat out of hell, you see all the Christmas trees on the, yeah. the center of town. So it's 2.43 p.m. and the camera pans over to one particular building. And then it slowly zooms in to a window, making us, the viewers, feel like we are the voyeurs. Exactly. And it goes through the window. You see Janet Lee in her lingerie on her back on the bed, looking dreamily up at her boyfriend, who's topless. I'm not going to lie. Every time I look at that guy, I'm like, okay, I won't stand next to you. (laughs) (laughs) And he's taking a look at the food that's on the nightstand next to her. He says, hey, you never ate your lunch. And she says, I got to get back to work. And he's trying to convince her to stick around the hotel room. So what you have here is a couple. Yes. (laughs) We got here a little afternoon rendezvous. And the two of them are obviously stealing lunch hours to engage in a little bit of, um, shall we say, intimacy. Super risque scene for 1960. (laughs) In fact, it's funny you should mention that because John Gavin, who plays the guy whose name is Sam, Sam Loomis, the namesake for Dr. Sam Loomis in Halloween. Halloween. So Sam Loomis is standing over Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane. So Hitchcock never really liked John Gavin's acting. John Gavin was a contract player with Universal, so that's how he got the role. Hitchcock did not like his acting. He thought he was wooden. Behind his back, he called him the stiff. (laughs) <laughs> which kind of cracks me up given the context of the scene because that's exactly what the problem was was hitchcock felt that he was a cold fish he didn't feel the passion he didn't think that john gavin was giving off enough heat so hitchcock according to janet lee took her aside and said to her i'm just not feeling it can you you know yeah we'll just yeah i'll say that and she said okay i'll try so basically the the crux of this whole scene is that the two of them are lovers she wants to marry it's money that's keeping the two of them legally apart from each other he lives in california she lives in phoenix arizona that's never explained in the movie how they met i don't know if you've read the book by robert block no i did not it was established it wasn't mentioned in the movie but it was established that the two of them actually met on a singles cruise and they hooked up on the cruise and they have been (laughs) rendezvousing ever since (laughs) and for the record uh, the reason i watch movies is so i don't have to read books (laughs) (laughs) you're talking to an english teacher (laughs) also in that scene i think it's interesting because janet lee wants to have that respectable relationship with him and that's when you get your first reference to a mother in this movie because she talks about how she wants him to come over and have her mom's picture on the mantle place. And the sister helps him, helps her cook dinner or something like that. So you kind of got your first little, I hate to say it this way, taste of a mother in this movie and the influence <laughs> a mother always looking over their child has and plays throughout the whole movie. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because she wants a life of respectability as you said and he says i can't get married i can't afford it he says what kind of a life would that be i run a hardware store he says you and i living in the back room of a hardware store yeah sure yeah his dad died and left him with all these debts so and he's paying his ex-wife's alimony it's actually kind of a sad scene because they they both just come across as so desperate he says to her are you thinking of cutting this off and she says i'm thinking of it and he says how can you even think a thing like that can I see you still? And she says, oh, we can see each other. We can even have dinner. 
And like you said, in a respectable way, way, you and me and my sister helping me cook a big steak for three. His next line is about that. And I listened to it twice. And I hate to, I'm sorry. I know anybody who's new listening to me talk, I'm going to just go off on different areas for I have no idea why. But I listened to this scene twice. Does she say we're going to boil a steak for three people or broil? I want to say broil, but it sure does say like boil. It sounds like boil a steak. I would have to go back and like look at that. I'm not well, sure. I, the first time I heard it, I was like, did she just say she's going to boil the steak? <laughs> no wonder he doesn't want to be with her. <laughs> but his response to that is kind of, <laughs> I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but he says, and then after dinner, we send your sister to the movies and turn mother's picture to the wall. Right. He's got one thing on his mind. <laughs> She's, and you, you will learn more as we go along here, especially when she gets to the bank, but you could tell that she's, and this is a movie of its time. She's in her early thirties and she's not married. So she has that part of her that I guess even as society at that time, that was way too old to not be. Nowadays, that's no one's getting married until they're 35. So it's a little bit different, but back then I guess she would be the spinster or in fear that she's not going to ever find that person. So she's holding on to him for all she can, for all she can, basically. Desperate. And that's what leads her to do what she does is this desperate attempt to just kind of grab a life. She wants more living out of life than what her circumstances are allowing her. She's got a boyfriend that she only sees during lunch hours, maybe once every week or two. She's got a job that's not very exciting for her. So the rendezvous ends, off she goes back to work, and she, she works in a bank. And this is where we have the second mother reference. She walks in, and her co-worker, another secretary, played by Pat Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. Yes. And Marion says that she has a bad headache. And, <laughs> and that's, when, that's when Pat says, oh, want some tranquilizers, she says. They'll knock that headache right out of you. <laughs> she says, my mother gave these to me on my wedding night. <laughs> And it's like, <laughs> there's, a, there's a what difference in time in the world where she just has tranquilizers in her purse. <laughs> but on her friggin' wedding night, yeah. and she comes out and she says, Teddy was furious when he found out I took tranquilizers. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Marion says, Have there been any calls? And Pat says, My mother called me. No, she says, Teddy called me. My mother called to see if Teddy called. Right. <laughs> so it's like all these, all these mother references. And we're not even, you know, we're not even eight minutes into the film yet, nine minutes into the film. And it just, again, it's that mother character watching over, looming over everything. And you, you don't notice it the first time you watch it because you don't know what's coming in this movie. But when you rewatch it, you start picking up on them things pretty quick. That's what makes it such a good movie. It's got such a rewatchability to it. Even even when you know the twists and what's gonna happen, you still there's just like I said, there's so it's such like I said, there's such great little things you can pick up on and great writing and great direction. Of course, you know, Hitchcock was a master at moving the camera and showing you what you needed to see. But again, as I watched it the other night, I just things that I picked up on, I was like, Oh, I never even really thought of it that way. But now that I know how it ends, it makes so much more sense how this conversation is going or what's important about this thing that Hitchcock has shown us, but it's just a masterwork. It definitely is. So Marion does not take the tranquilizers. 
<laughs> which is a good thing for Marion because this means she can actually drive. Well, maybe that's a bad thing for Marion. <laughs> <laughs> well, in walks the boss. He's got a client with him. This client is the biggest sleazebag you can possibly imagine. Yes, he's he flirts with Marion. He's all drunk and he comes this close to her face. He has no definition of personal space. He's waving all this money around, all this cash. He says, my 18-year-old daughter, she's getting married tomorrow. I'm buying her a house for her wedding gift, and I never carry more than I can afford to lose. Exactly. And he's waving $40,000. In in, um, Marion Crane's face about, because she, like I said earlier, she wants to be married. She wants to have that life that he's going to give his 18-year-old daughter. So it's just all right in her face. And, you know, that's probably making her headache even worse. (laughs) Well, he said one thing when they walked in that never made any sense to me. And I wonder if you have anything to say about it. He and the boss walk into the office and it's Phoenix. And so it's hot. And he says, oh, hotter than fresh milk. Yeah, I remember that. And it's like, I I miss this stuff. I don't know. (laughs) Is he talking straight out of the cow? I I don't know. Is that would be my guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I didn't know if you had any insight to shed or if no, that was just. No, I, I don't hang out at farms. <laughs> trying to get fresh milk. <laughs> I did like the line um, that the other secretary, um, Patricia Hitchcock, when when they go into the office, she says, uh, uh, what did she say to Joe? She goes, oh, he must not have noticed my wedding ring. That's why he didn't flirt. He must have noticed my wedding. <laughs> wedding. He must have noticed my wedding ring. That's why he didn't flirt with me. <laughs> I got a good laugh out of that. <laughs> Flattering herself. <laughs> I just thought it was a good little line. <laughs> I lo- I, the other line I love that she has is when he's waving the $40,000 in cash. And she says, I declare. And he says, I don't. That's how I get to keep it. <laughs> I'm not endorsing tax evasion. I repeat, I am not endorsing tax evasion. We are talking about a movie. I I just felt the need to say that. Right. For whoever in the government is listening to this podcast right now, it's just a movie. We're talking about Psycho. Go watch it. But yes, he is this over the top. I'm assuming he's Texan, right? Because he's got the cowboy hat on and he's. Oh, it's every stereotype you can imagine. Yeah, he's got the drawl, he's got the cowboy hat. Yeah, and yeah. Marion is tasked with taking the $40,000, depositing it at the bank, and she doesn't. She sees it as one last desperate grab for some degree of happiness in life, a chance yes. at something. Yes. She walks into the boss's office. She says, is it all right with you? If I go home after the bank, I have a headache. He says, fine. And that's when Mr. Oil turns to her and says to her, oh, what you need is a good couple of days in Vegas. She says, I'm going to be spending this weekend in bed. His next line that was cut originally, he was going to say after that, oh, bed, my next favorite playground. <laughs> but the census said, no. Too risky. Too risky. <laughs> So Marion makes the decision to take the $40,000 and not go to the bank, and she returns to her apartment instead. She packs up, and her plan is to leave town with the money, to drive across state lines with it into California, meet up with Sam with the hopes of saying to him, hey, let's start our lives together. Let's that camera sit on that money so many times. <laughs> you just look at it like, oh, I, that's the bait. That's the red herring we're all going to follow. <laughs> The thing of it is, is that before she stole the money, the opening scene when she's with Sam in the hotel room, her bra and her slip, she's dressed in white. Once she steals the money, it's all in black. That's right. 
He's committing sins. <laughs> so she gets into her car, she drives out of town, and she shows pretty much from the very first second of being a fugitive from justice that she sucks at it. <laughs> yeah, she's a terrible thief. <laughs> she is not good at a poker face. She is not good at covering her tracks. There she is waiting at a red light to leave town. I was going to say. Because luck would have it. She's got bad luck, doesn't she? <laughs> who is crossing the street right in front? She's the first one in line at the red light who is crossing the street in front of her, her boss. <laughs> exactly. <That's... laughs> he stops and he looks at her like, wait a minute. And she says, oh, shit. Right. Yes, she has extremely bad luck. <laughs> it's like <laughs> calling out of work and then running into your boss at the restaurant down the street or something. <laughs> like, oh, damn it. <laughs> So she drives off and then dissolve to the following morning. It's now Saturday morning. And we see her car on the side of the road, this desert road. And a cop car comes up from behind. He gets out. He goes over. He knocks on her window. We see that she's sleeping on the front seat at the front seat. And she immediately jumps to attention and she begins to floor it. <laughs> and it's like. Exactly. It's and like, he stands out in front of the car. <laughs> Did you notice that? He sort of pivots to where he's like, oh, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I was like, this guy's not a very good cop. He's going to get run over right here. <laughs> what you want to do is play it cool. <laughs> but she can't. And as she, she mentioned, she's a terrible thief. <laughs> a, a terrible thief. Janet Lee said herself in the commentary that I was listening to last night that it was proof that Marion was just not cut out for this kind of life. She said, this was not who Marion was. This was not, this was an act of desperation. This was an impulse. This was not thinking. And it's just not something that it's not in her DNA. So the cop is interrogating her. She's getting all snippy. She says, have I broken any laws? And he says, no, ma'am. And he says, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me see your driver's license. Why do you want to see my driver's license? It's like, calm down. <laughs> exactly. Play nice. And what cracks me up is the police officer doesn't seem like he ever follows the threads that are right there in front of all of us <laughs> it's like why isn't he like wait a minute get out of the car let me check everything maybe it was different back in 1960 but he's awful nice to her as rude as she is to him <laughs> well the funny thing is is that we never really see the police officer's face he has these dark sunglasses on. He never takes them off. That was a deliberate choice on, on Hitchcock's part because he had a lifelong phobia of cops and authority figures. The story goes is that when Hitchcock was about maybe five years old, give or take, that he committed some minor infraction. And so his father said to him, take this note down to the, I don't know if it was to the police chief or to the sergeant, whoever it was, take this down to the police station. The father was friends with the guy. He was in on it with him. Little Alfie, five years old, obediently takes a letter over to the police station. The guy reads it. Got the profile going. Yeah, good evening. <laughs> and uh, so the story goes, he was locked in a cell for five minutes. And then at the end of those five minutes, the cop lets him out and says, that's what we do with naughty little boys. Now, Pat Hitchcock said that she highly doubts that that's the way it happened. She thinks it was her father just embellishing the story. Right. Who knows? Hey, I wasn't there, but <laughs> it led to a lifelong fear of the police. And that's why he has the cop looking so intimidating with this close up that's in your face. It's more in your face than, than the oil guy is Cassidy with uh, Marion with the cash sunglasses on intimidating looking yep. looks at her driver's license expression or anything. Exactly. And he wordlessly returns her license. She drives off a little, un, you know, a little rattled, a little unnerved. He follows her. 
she veers off the highway and she decides to stop at, at California Charlie's used car lot in the hopes of throwing the cop off her trail. She's going to exchange her car and her poker face is no better with California Charlie. <laughs> no. He says to her, I don't want any trouble. An old saying, the first customer is the most trouble. And, you know, it's too nice of a day to argue. So I'm going to treat you so fair and square. That you and she's like, look, I just want to exchange my car. And, uh, and, and of like, course, she brings been... him trouble because. Yep. She says, I, what does he say? He's, um, he says, this is the first time a salesman's ever been strong armed by the customer or something like that. Let's yeah. get this over with as quickly as possible. He says, eh, maybe she picks one out. How about that one? That's fine. <laughs> and he says, yeah, you want to take it for a test drive? Nah. Well, do you want the usual 48 hours to think? Of nah. He says, uh, you can prove it's yours, right? right? And she says, I believe I have the necessary papers showing that snippiness that she had with the cop earlier. She pays him $700 in cash, which he finds suspicious. Meanwhile, <laughs> the cop is across the street watching this whole transaction go down. Her the whole way. <laughs> and she sees it. So she drives off with her new car, which is useless at this point because the cop's like, Okay, make a note, new license plate. But he never follows up with her. He never follows her or nothing. Well, that's the last we, yeah, that's the last we see of the cop. Yep. That's the last we see of the cop. I mean, he goes over to California Charlie to question him and to look at the papers, but then that's just not, that's just dropped. Exactly. And she, it begins raining, the windshield wipers she has going. Again, the visual yeah, foreshadowing. Oh, hmm, shiny flashing blades yeah. in the, you know, with streams underneath the stream of water. Hmm. And that's when she sees the flashing sign, Bates Motel, vacancy. Oh, there's a room available. That's right. <laughs> it's still raining. She gets out of the car and she meets Norman Bates, who gives her cabin number one. <laughs> for reasons. <laughs> Norman <laughs> so, has reasons for giving her cabin number one. We're going to stop there as far as the plot setup goes, because All that's right. the introduction to Norman Bates. So I have to ask you, Psycho, what are your thoughts on it? Overall, I mean, obviously, it's one of Hitchcock's best movies. It's his most popular movie. I mentioned earlier, it's just so rewatchable. Even when you find out everything that we're going to find out in the spoiler section, if you don't know about it by now, you can still watch it again and you still get excited for certain scenes that are coming up or you pick up on little things in the dialogue or the way conversations are held. We'll get to in a minute with the conversation between Norman and Marion. But just the way it, it's different when you know, when you find out, you know, at, by the end, you know everything. You know Norman is the killer and all the stuff with his mother. So when you see this lead up to the shower scene, when you first see it, and that's the brilliance of it, because Hitchcock, I know the new phrase is subvert your expectation. But this whole movie, you're following Marilyn or Marion Crane, and you're just thinking she's going to either get away with it. And then when she has that change of heart. And she's like, well, I'll go back. Now your your thought as a movie fan is you're thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen when she gets back? Is she going to get jailed? Is Sam going to come and save her? Is something going to happen with her and Norman? They're going to get together or something, you know, something weird like that. And then that shower scene, you're just like, what the hell movie am I in now? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, what else can you say about it that hasn't been said? It's just a masterpiece. I mean, the way Hitchcock, and he's done it through all of his movies, the way he uses this camera. And this is a much more streamlined Hitchcock. He isn't as, he doesn't get too artsy, if you want to say it that way, in this movie. It's vertigo and stuff. There's some quote-unquote artsy moments. There's some filmmaker moments where this is <laughs> him just using that camera to really, like you mentioned earlier, we enter in the movie, we're the voyeur. And he uses that camera to just kind of punish you for being a voyeur. 
Yeah, he knows what you want to see. You want to see her in that shower. You want to see you want to see the murder. And the shower scene, you never see anything. It's all your imagination. I mean, you see enough to put pieces together, but I think he was talking there was a moment in one of the behind the scenes where they had I guess they had a guy who would watch the movie before they sent it off to the ratings board. And so they were watching it and the guy was like, oh, wait, you can't show that. We got to edit it because you can see her breast here. And Hitchcock looked at him and goes, no, you don't see her breast. You just want to see her breast. <laughs> and that's sort of what it is. And you, and that money, you're just watching the money. And it just, ah, it's so brilliant the way he uses the camera to tell you what you want to see. You know, nowadays they would just over explain everything and tell you the stuff they want you to know. As far as the shower scene goes, I'm sure you've heard this, that that the sound effect of the knife penetrating flesh was a cassava melon. He had the sound guy. Well, he sat down. Hitchcock sat down at the end of this table. I don't know if it was like a long banquet table or whatever it was. And every possible kind of melon you can imagine, watermelon, honeydew, cassava, all lined up down the table. Hitchcock sat in the chair, leaned back, closed his eyes to visualize, folded his arms across his massive chest and said, go. And the sound guy went down the table, worked his way down the table, giving each of these melons a single stab. And once he heard the sound that he wanted to hear for the scene that he had in his mind, he said that one. And it was the cassava melon. So. <laughs> and that's all you hear. And like that's I said, all you never hear. see that knife stab her at any point. And there's what? What did they say? There's 70 something cuts in 45 seconds of film. Seven, yeah, 7852 is a great documentary if you haven't seen it. I have it on yeah. DVD. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> I think you said that last time, too. <laughs> I will say it every time. In addition to the stabbing of the melon being the sound effect, I'm sure you also know that the blood, he did not like the look of traditional stage yeah, blood on black and white film. It wasn't realistic enough, so he used Bosco chocolate syrup. <laughs> All I could think of was George Costanza and Seinfeld. <laughs> Bosco. <laughs> and for any Seinfeld fans, you know you get that reference. <laughs> but yeah, this it was, whole sequence uh, it, is a foodie's delight. You got chocolate syrup, you got honeydew melon. I mean, this is like... <laughs> so the whole shower sequence was filmed in, I think, about a week, they said. And there was a myth that lasted for decades that Hitchcock, in an attempt to get some legitimate screams out of Janet Lee, had them turn the heat out and have the water go cold. But Janet Lee denied that. She said no. She says, I've heard that said God knows how many times. She said no, he never did that. Yes, and she said he was very courteous to her through the whole filming of that scene. Uh, she did mention at one point because they were using the warm water and in a way to keep herself from being exposed <laughs> in the scene while they're filming it because they couldn't have any nudity in it. Her and her makeup lady devised this method with uh, moleskin, which is used to cover blisters and stuff. And they covered her breast, her nipples. Or <laughs> this is a PG-13 show. I don't know what, <laughs> what this podcast is. But anyway, so she said... While she was at the end when she was laying over the tub and she's basically dying dead, they had to do this take so many times. And she had through the take because this was, again, this is one of the things I love about the behind the scenes stuff. And when you find out about it, because you don't think about it in the time that you're living in, you think these things are kind of easy. But back then they didn't have autofocus. So as he's pulling back from her face as she's dead, she has to keep that stare, that blank dead stare 
the whole time while he's holding back because he's auto focusing. It has to go real, or he's manually focusing the camera. So it has to go very, very slow. And she said they did like, I don't know how many takes, 15, 20 takes of it. And she said it was grueling to go through that. Well, it, by the last take, the steam from the warm water was making this moleskin come off of her and she was starting to get exposed. And she said they couldn't see it on the ground, but the people above her could look right down and see her or Oof. something like that. And she said in a moment in her head, she thought, well, I could complain about this and start all over again. And she said, no, I'm not doing this scene one more time. So whoever <laughs> sees it, sees it. Which I thought was pretty funny. And it's really great to hear Janet Lee say it because she's, again, from another time. So anytime when I was listening to these interviews and she would talk about anything about the nudity or anything like that, she was always very um, careful with her words and trying to do it a little more politely than we probably would do it now, you know? Yeah. You mentioned that the film was sent and that there was a guy who thought he saw nudity in the shower scene. The senses themselves, they took a look at the film. Half of them said they saw nudity and half of them said they did not. So they basically turned to Hitchcock and said, fix it. So he takes the reel of film back. He says, all right. Doesn't do a single thing to it. Doesn't change a frame. He simply resubmits it. And this time they said, okay, good, better. <laughs> those who saw the nudity no longer saw it. And interestingly enough, those who did not see it the first time, the second time they were saying, wait a minute, we think we saw something. <laughs> For years after I saw it, because I saw it when I was a kid, and then I didn't see it again for a long time after that. And when even then, when I would see it, it took me a long until I was in college. And I had, I know I mentioned it before, I had that film making history class, whatever the hell it was. And they had a whole section, like you said, about Hitchcock. So you went all through that. And then they broke down the scene and they were like, they said in the textbook we were reading that you never see the knife. And I was like, wait a minute. And then when the professor showed the movie again. I was like, damn, I'll be damned. They, you never see her get stabbed <laughs> all these years. I thought for sure this was this brutal, grotesque, grotesque scene. And then I'm watching it going, oh, this isn't anything like, you know, the 80s slasher movies that I saw, you know? <laughs> even though they all ripped it off a thousand times. In the shower murder sequence, there is one very quick shot. I mean, they're all quick shots, but there's one very quick shot where the knife actually does appear to make contact with her. I think it's her stomach. Yeah, right on her stomach, but it never stabs. But it, you never see it penetrate flesh, and that particular shot was filmed in reverse. They began the shot with, you know, the knife against her stomach, and then they pulled it away. And then when they edited the film together, they just played it in reverse, so it looked like it was going towards her rather than, than being pulled away. It's just brilliant. It's let the audience use their imagination because it's a thousand times worse than anything you can put on the screen. But that also speaks really, I think, to just how screwed up things were in previous generations in terms of what was considered acceptable and not acceptable. You couldn't have married couples in TV, on TV or in the movies in the same bed, but you could have Clark Gable slapping Claudette Colbert. You can have Tony Randall slapping Doris Day. You can have, I mean, yes, I'll go there. I mean, you can have all of the anti-Semitism. You can have the use of blackface, but no, you cannot... Kisses cannot be longer than, what was it, like two or three seconds. You cannot have nudity because those are the things that are inappropriate, immoral. Those are the things that corrupt mind. You know, physical violence, fine. Racism, fine. But uh, it's, it's, just, it's, just so, it's just so screwed up. 
I will say one thing this movie does for the first time that no other movie does. It has a toilet <laughs> in the scene and it also shows the toilet flushing. <laughs> so yeah. that kind of ties in there. I guess, like you said, you can see a man slap a woman, but you can't see someone flush a toilet. <laughs> Apparently nobody went to the bathroom before 1960. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so poor Marion meets her demise. And the sad thing is, is that she, like you said, she was all set to return the money. Yes. You know, she's having that conversation with Norman in the back room, which was, and I'm not looking to sound like I'm, <laughs> how do I word this? She makes decisions that make you say, huh? So here she is checking into the Bates Motel. Here is this guy who's obviously very socially awkward, good looking, youthful, polite. He stammers and he's nervous and he's self-conscious. He cannot even say the word bathroom in front of her. He's showing her the hotel room and he says stationary over there with Bates Motel printed on it in case you want to make your friends back home feel envious. There's the bed, here's the dresser. And then he turns on the light and he says, the um over there. And she says the word for him, the bathroom. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, but, then, <laughs> but then he turns to her and he says, would you have dinner with me? sandwiches and milk <laughs> sandwiches and milk and she says oh i'd like to and so he says great i'll be back with with my trusty umbrella off he goes and you see a look in her face like dear god what did i just commit to i have to sit with this guy and eat sandwiches but she was hungry so before he comes back with the food she hears out the window him and the voice of an old lady screaming at each other he's calling her mother and mother is screaming back at Norman, no, she will not have my food. She's not going to satisfy her appetite with my son. It's like this like emasculating, vicious, vitriolic voice, this raspy voice. So he comes down with the sandwiches and milk after screaming, shut up, shut up. Yeah. And he turns to Marion. He says, soup's on. Yeah, and she's like, okay. <laughs> and she says, well, you made you made dinner, so let's eat. <laughs> and he said, and this is when he says, well, let's not eat in your room. Let's eat in the office. They go into the office. He says, let's not eat in the office. Let's go into the back room. And they go into the back room. And at this point, you're saying, oh, no, honey. Yeah, <laughs> no. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. What you but doing? then he proceeds to say to her, I'm not going to eat. It's all for you. <laughs> now, I get it. It was 1960, but it's like... <laughs> There's red flags everywhere here. I mean, get out. I don't think the term stranger danger was coined yet, but it's like, oh. So they have a conversation about how each of them stepped into their own their own private traps in life. The strangest part of that before we move on with the sandwiches is when she first sits down to eat, she pulls out a fork and she starts eating a sandwich with a fork. <laughs> I noticed that. I was like, what the hell is going on? Here? That was one pathetic sandwich that she made. At first, I'm like, is this a salad? It's like, yeah, because she pulls out a fork and she starts eating it. And then she's butter. I guess that was butter or something. She's putting on the slice of bread. But I don't know like no sandwich I ever had. Norman uh, back up to the house and be like, "Bring me some ham and cheese, buddy." <laughs> well, it was it was it like a, a was it a cheese sandwich that just wasn't grilled? I don't, I don't know what it was. They <laughs> they have their conversation, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is one of those conversations that when you're hearing it for the first time, you're really concentrating on what Janet Lee is saying, and sort of the influence that Norman's having on her to change her mind. But then when you hear it, knowing that he's the killer and his mother and all that, it just takes this whole little dark turn, if that makes sense. You can almost see him in his personality shift from being Mr. Nice, awkward kid to where when she talks about putting his mother in a home and he instantly just snaps to where he's like, put her in a home and get rid of her and all that stuff. And 
it's just interesting because then you know what he is and you're like okay there i see mm. it's already starting that that mask is starting to slip a little bit right there we all go a little mad sometimes yeah, we all go a little mad sometimes I mean, he's looking at her like he's on to her like you're not a good person i what do you know about caring he says to her you know, and she, you know, that brings me back to, you know, the fact that, you know, she was wearing white in the beginning and then after she sold money, she was wearing black. It's like, it's like you expected her to turn to him saying, I wear only white underwear, I swear. <laughs> I'm a good person. <laughs> it's white, I promise. But also he was picking up on things from when she first got to the hotel because she tells him, I forget what she tells him to go. She's going to LA. And that's one of the things she writes in the little book and she writes a different name. And Marie Samuels. Gets, yeah. And then when in the by the end of the conversation, he knows her real name. He knows that she's on the run for something. And as I was watching that, I thought it was really interesting because this was made in what 1959, 1960, that that time frame. And that was when serial killers weren't as diagnosed as they are today. And I've gone down the rabbit hole of serial killer podcast <laughs> that I had to stop because I was having crazy nightmares. But anyway, <laughs> I thought it was interesting because this movie was made before all of that. But knowing the things that I have listened on all these documentaries and whatnot, you can see that this guy is what would fit into the, uh, what do they call it? The um... Well, today I think they call it, uh, I think the uh, acceptable uh, term is dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. But the, um, the profile, profile. He fits that serial killer profile. Young, he's got issues with his mother. And he's got that sort of awkward attractiveness that someone like maybe a Ted Bundy would have. And that's how you would attract these women. But then, like I said, you see that mask slip. And even when he's cleaning up the bathroom, and like I said, the first time you think he's just trying to protect his mother. But if you watch that scene and, it's, and Hitchcock is showing you everything that he's doing, he's done this shit before. And you're like, okay, so when he's in that parlor and she's given these clues that she's really on the run, you know, in his serial killer mind, he's like, I've got a victim right here. No one's going to come look for this woman. But I just thought it was fascinating that that character fit into some kind of profile that hadn't even been established for, what, another 20, 30 years. And they said, and I, like I said, I didn't read the book, but in some of the behind the scenes stuff, they said they had actually changed Norman from the character he was in the book. In the book, he's like a 40-year-old man or something like that, and he's short and pudgy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I read the book, and yeah, you're right. He's in his 40s, he's balding, and he's overweight. He's also an alcoholic. And it's yeah. like, I'm glad that they took that out because that you needed the charisma, the unassuming, the vulnerability, I think, is what you needed right. with the character of Norman Bates if the audiences were to react to the character of Norman the way Hitchcock wanted them to, yeah, which and, was to feel sympathy for him. And when you find out everything, because you do, like you said, you're buying in. And that was one of the things I think the writer, I wrote his name down, Joseph Stefano, was saying was a challenge for him was because you do have Janet Lee, the star of the movie, getting killed off. And that's who your sympathy has been with for the first third of the movie. And he said now he had to write it in a way, knowing what Norman was, but he had to write it in a way that now you're shifting your sympathy onto Norman for being put in this position by his mother, who you think is the killer. Exactly. It's She's a great performance to go with great writing and direction. I love how all of that works. And like I said, when you see it again, you kind of pick up on those things as you're watching it. And Marion Crane was not his first victim or mother's yeah. first victim, we should say. Right. 
So my question is just how big was that swamp? Yeah, I was going to bring that up because he pushes <laughs> okay. at least two cars in there in this okay. movie. <laughs> and then there were two missing girls cases that they confirmed it at the end. So there's four. <laughs> it's like, okay. That's a or, big ass swamp. <laughs> what cracks me up is that, you know, he pushes her car into the swamp. He pushes, we don't see him pushing Detective right. Abogast's car in the swamp, but we see the after the aftermath of that. We see him standing there at the edge of the swamp looking. Right you know, satisfied that, you know, okay, good. Another one gone. You know, you can practically hear mother's voice in his head going and stay out. <laughs> I do love the part where he pushes Marion Crane <laughs> when he pushes her car in and it sort of stops halfway. <laughs> <laughs> I like it because he's so confident as he's standing there watching it go down. And then when it stops, he's like, oh. <laughs> he looks to the left. He looks to the right. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> Down it goes. <laughs> and this over-the-top gurgling sound that I know Hitchcock put in there just to make me laugh. <laughs> well, Hitchcock himself referred to Psycho as a comedy. He said he always saw Psycho as a dot comedy. All right. <laughs> and you know something? It kind of is in a lot of ways. It definitely has its moments. I mean, it's a horror movie, you know, it's a thriller, but it's, it's, it's got, it's, it's got its moments of, of dark comedy. I, one of my favorites is right after Marion gets killed and we then fade into Sam's hardware store in Fairvale where he lives. And <laughs> there's a customer in the store and she's reading off she's reading like a, like a bottle or a container <laughs> yeah. of, I think it's rat poison or insect killer or something like that. And she turns to the clerk behind the counter and she says to him, you know, death should always be painless. <laughs> and we just had this, you know, brutal scene, right? Brutal scene of, of murder in the shower of all places. Yes, you know, yes. when you're most none vulnerable. Us, yeah, none of us took showers after watching this movie for a long time. <laughs> well, Janet Lee claims, and again, I take it with a grain of salt, but Janet Lee claims that she was so, I don't want to say traumatized, but that she was so affected by the notion of, wow, Looking back on it, you know, I played, you know, a woman who was vulnerable by herself in a place she's never been before in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, in the shower. And look what happens to her. She says it unnerved me and I never took a shower again. I always took baths. And it's like, did you really just take baths? Really? <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> you were acting. You knew what that's. Well, I mean, you didn't have the same visceral effect on you as it did on us because you knew what there was cameraman standing in there and all these crew members <laughs> exactly <laughs> um hitchcock did have a story now again how true or not this is but he said that a fellow wrote him a letter saying that his daughter watched a french movie i want to say diabolique diabolique and guess what <laughs> what I have it on DVD. <laughs> Naturally. Do you have to have a membership to come into your house? No, but what's, you just gave me a million the, dollar idea. Fee? What's the late fee on it? On renting from Frank's video store? Anytime anybody borrows a DVD from me, I keep a little log and you know, get the late fees going. <laughs> they bring it back. That'll be 10 extra dollars. I want it back by 10 p.m. on Thursday. <laughs> But um, so he said that this fellow said that his daughter, there was a murder scene in the bathtub, would not take a bath again. Well, then they saw Psycho and he said his daughter won't take a shower and he doesn't know what to do because she's getting a bit offensive. <laughs> so Hitchcock said he wrote him back and said, take her to the dry cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think he told that story to was it Dick Cavett? Yes. Oh, Mike. Maybe it was Mike Douglas. It was one it of was those Dick talk Cavett. shows. Yeah. It was Dick Cavett. Yeah. Yep. Well, now that we've totally dated ourselves by knowing that reference, exactly <laughs> that name. We have the rest of the film that basically takes a look at the aftermath. You have Marion's sister Lila, played by Vera Miles, teaming up with Sam. And the two of them are determined to find out just what happened. Private detective Abogast, played by Martin Balsam. He enters the picture, and together the three of them try to track it down. (laughs) And then he exits the picture. (laughs) In a murder that actually is... I don't know if I would call it more effective than the shower scene. It's two very different kinds of camera setups and obviously just, you know, different circumstances. But I would say that it probably is overshadowed by the by the shower scene unfairly, because I think that the way that Hitchcock set up his murder was just as good. You know, you see the door opening, you have the bird's eye view angle with the sudden screeching violence. I have had students watching Psycho in my film class who jump more at that moment than they do at the shower scene. <laughs> Cause it's surprising because as we go back to the, the writer again, when he said he shifted the sympathy to Norman, he also said in the movie, you sort of shift your hero view from Marion to now you think the detective Well, he, cause he's this hard boiled, tough detective and he's going to get it. So you think he's going to be the hero of the movie at this point. And then almost a scene after you're introduced to the guy all of a sudden here she comes and she cuts his face and he does that great where he's falling backwards off the off the stairs but yes now he is dead and i guess norman pushes his car into the great swamp (laughs) it's like i don't know where he found a swamp that big probably epcot center or something But taking a look here at the list that I have, and I know that you have a few as well, what do you say to some fun facts about anything having to do with the movie, behind the scenes, on the screen? You go first. Um, Well, since you mentioned Epcot, (laughs) (laughs) Walt Disney refused to let Alfred Hitchcock shoot anything at Disneyland after watching Psycho because he found it so reprehensible. (laughs) A little ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Disney himself being sort of a vile creature. Mm. (laughs) Well, speaking of vile creatures, one that I have has to do with Mother, Mother Bates. Hitchcock was so determined to keep the secret twists of the film just that, a secret, that he actually put out official casting calls to try to find actresses to audition for the role of Mother, even though it was never his plan to have the character in the movie at all, other than as the fake skeleton. He even had a director chair made with Mrs. Bates printed on it. You can see on, just do a Google image search. There are plenty of pictures of him just sitting there in the Mrs. Bates chair, like looking at the camera with that dour expression on his face. (laughs) And many actresses were jumping at the chance to play (laughs) Mrs. Bates. (laughs) He was even naming, he was even offering names of, oh, I would like that one. And maybe, you know, this actress or that actress. That, that actress might be good. And, you know, let me consider that. And I don't know, that, that's kind of bordering on cruelty. It's like, okay, hey, you are tantalizing them with this carrot of, hey, a role in a movie that's supposed to be a good role. And <laughs> no, never mind. I'm faking you out. Well, it was neat to see how much of a big picture man he was. <laughs> um, I have a piece of trivia that I found fascinating uh, was that this was the first draft of the script that they shot with that this was uh, the first draft really joseph stefano he said he wrote a draft for himself 
and then he worked off of that. But the first draft that he handed to Hitchcock is the one that they shot the movie with. And that is extremely rare in Hollywood. Especially if it's a script that good. I mean, some of that dialogue is cracking. Yes, it is. I love it when Abigail says to Norman, if it doesn't gel, then it ain't Aspic, and this ain't gelling. <laughs> it's like, who talks like that? <laughs> I know it. The hard-boiled detective. Love it. Love it. Well, originally, one that I have is that the Shawa scene, originally, Hitchcock was not going to have any music in it at all. And that's when Bernard Herman turned to him and says, oh, hang on a second, where do you get a load of this? And he pulled like the Jack Nicholson Joker thing, where do you get a load of me? I got something <laughs> up my sleeve and screeching violins and movie history was made. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, Hitchcock went along with it. Yep. And I could piggyback off of that. In the scene at the end where Norman storms into the fruit cellar and Sam grabs him from behind and you see the wig coming off in the dress, Herman didn't want there to be music in that scene. And Hitchcock said, no, let's bring that music you brought from the shower scene back in and we can tie it all together that way. It all comes full circle. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. One last thing that I wanted to mention was that Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense, of course. Have you ever heard of a documentary, or better yet, have you ever seen a horror movie documentary called Terror in the Isles? I know of this documentary, but I, I can't think that I've seen it or not, to be honest with you. I know that was, what, early 80s, mid-80s, something around 1984, that? yeah, yeah. Okay. And Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen, they co-host this documentary looking at the history of horror films, archive footage of interviews and things like that. Hitchcock, they used archive footage of an interview with Hitchcock where he was talking about his technique for building suspense. And one thing he said was, there is no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it. <laughs> and he said, if you want the audience to feel suspense, you have to give the audience information. They have to have information that the characters on screen do not have. And in this interview, he said, let's say you and I right here, we're sitting across this desk from each other. We're talking. Let's say that this is a scene in the movie. We're talking about baseball. He said, suddenly a bomb goes off and we're both killed. And the audience has a 10 second long shock. Basically, what he said was that's just a jump scare. He didn't use the term, I don't, I don't know if the term jump scare was around then yet, but that's basically what his message was. Show the audience the bomb. He says, there's a bomb under the desk, show it to them. And then you and I are sitting here, we're talking baseball, and the audience is going, no, no, no. <laughs> he says, that's how you build the suspense. And I wish more filmmakers today would listen to that interview and go by those words. I have one more that I'll talk about, and this ties in with the release of the movie. And that is that Hitchcock went to the theater owners and said that no one was allowed in once the movie started. Because apparently back in those times, the movie, I guess, ran on a continuous loop. So if you just showed up at whatever time, you could go watch the movie. If, say, you were halfway through it, you could watch the one half and then sit there. And then the first half would come again and you could piece it all together. So he didn't want people coming into the movie halfway through going, well, where is Janet Lee? She's a star of this movie. What's going on? So, and apparently all the um, theater owners bought into it and they wouldn't let people in. And it sort of added to the mystique of the movie when it first came out. He also didn't let any of the uh, film reviewers see the movie beforehand. They all had to go see it with the regular crowd, which 
They said that's probably why they didn't get great reviews because it pissed the viewers <laughs> off because they had to go sit with the commoners. But I thought that was pretty interesting that he had that, that, that not only that he said to do that, that all of these theater owners just went right along with him because he was Hitchcock. I don't know if he was the first famous director, but maybe the first pop culture famous director. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, there were big name directors, of course, but Hitchcock's name was always above the title. Well, what I should say is once he was established, his name was always above the title. Almost always, it was before the actors as well. And he always had his cameo in the movies that everybody was looking for. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And he's got his cowboy hat on in this one. (laughs) Yeah, and he said he had to get it over with early in this movie so nobody would be looking for him. But also, I think the combination of that and he had as I mentioned, or I referenced a while back, but the TV show that he was a, a host of, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock, was it Alfred Hitchcock Presents? I think that's- Alfred Hitchcock Presents, yeah. yep. And that sort of made him more recognizable than your, I guess your most average director, even the famous directors, they wouldn't, you wouldn't know him from seeing kind of the precursor to like Scorsese or Spielberg or something like that. And we would recognize that person we just saw him. Yeah. So- This movie has the greatest- trailer ever for movies yes that is some weird ass shit right there <laughs> yeah. they need, he's they just making more trailers like that oh my god it was so great and he's just walking through the sets going oh this is where this well i can't tell you what's gonna happen here <laughs> it's just so damn funny i'm like oh that's brilliant <laughs> like he saw psycho as a dot comedy and the trail what i love about the trailer is the upbeat music it's just so it's so corny and it's so upbeat and you think you're watching some you know sappy comedy with doris day and rock hudson or something only it's hitchcock saying it's it's difficult to describe the way the twisting of the spine and well i won't get into it let's just go into the next room but he throws open the curtain of the shower and you get that horrible scream right at the end (laughs) if anybody hasn't seen it go check it out on youtube it's a really great trailer it's about six minutes long and it is it's I would say it's just as good as the movie. <laughs> it's Very just different just reasons. <laughs> it's just as fun. It, you know, it, yeah. it, you will laugh, and you're you're supposed to laugh. You're supposed to laugh. Yep. All right. So I think this might be a good time to try to stump each other with trivia oh, questions. What go. say ye? <laughs> I'm all in. <laughs> going first. Oh, you go first. You go, I go first. first. All right. Let's see who's doomed to spend a night in cabin number one. Well, I might be in trouble because you already know the answer to one of these questions you mentioned earlier. So let's start with this one. What was the color of the dress that Norman and the sheriff's wife picked out for her funeral? I helped Norman pick the dress she was buried in, periwinkle blue. Hey, very good. Very good. Uh, that character was funny. <laughs> she was <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> That's right. Your sister might be dead, but come over for dinner and do your reporting there. It'll be nicer that way. <laughs> All right. Well, I have one for you that actually has to do with the fact that Psycho became a franchise. How many sequels in total were made with Anthony Perkins returning in the role of Norman Bates? So I'm not talking about the prequel series Bates Motel from 10 years ago. I'm not talking about. <laughs> You know, anything like that. How many movies were made, including the original? How many sequels were made to Psycho with Norman ba- with Anthony? Her- oh, How many okay. sequels were made with Anthony Perkins returning as Norman Bates? Gotcha. Um, I have an answer, but I can't remember one of them if he's in it briefly or not. But let's see. I know he's in the first one, obviously, and the second one and the third one. 
I can't remember. He's in the fourth one. So I'm going to go with three. Three sequels? Well, including the first one. So Psycho, Psycho 2, and Psycho 3. You're right, but he was also in Psycho 4. Ah, uh, he was a little bit, wasn't he? Actually, he was, he was, I would say about half of it. Wasn't the fourth one like kind of a flashbacky movie? Yeah, it was all, it was a combination, Norman, a few years after Psycho 3 and him looking back in his childhood. Yeah. So it was, right. so it was like sort of a half a prequel. Yeah, I couldn't remember if he was in it looking back or not. <laughs> you got me on that one. <laughs> and you know who plays Norman in Psycho 4? The younger Norman is Henry Thomas, the kid from E.T. Yes. E.T., yep. I remember the movie, but I couldn't remember if Anthony Perkins was in it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this one I know you got, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Norman has a favorite snack. What is that favorite snack? Candy corn. Which candy corn that he is a psycho because he's standing around eating candy corn in December, no less. <laughs> do you like candy corn? Because like no, the I do not. the running thing is that you know no one is supposed to like candy corn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I cannot eat it. I was just curious. <laughs> All right. Well, the next one I have for you is this. Anthony Perkins directed one of the Psycho sequels. Was it two, three, or four? It was three. It was three. Yes. All right. <laughs> so you can only imagine the blow to his ego when they made Psycho 4 and they said to him, yeah, take, <laughs> take a back seat. <laughs> All right. Let's see if we get this one. This one I found to be very interesting. All right. So at the end of the movie, when Norman slash his mother is sitting in the police station there's an officer that is bringing her a blanket there's another officer who opens the door to let that officer in that particular officer was played by a famous actor do you know who it is yes it was ted knight ah I went I on to on do the one. mary tyler moore show and too close for comfort and caddyshack <laughs> oh my god and caddyshack yes and caddyshack yeah. Uh, I thought I would get you on that one. I, I when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I got to go back and watch." <laughs> and I'm like, oh, "That's him." <laughs> he has no lines, but it's very clearly him. Yep. Well, my last question for you is sort of a uh, the answer isn't sort of a throwaway line of dialogue. So apologies in advance if this is unfair. As Marion Crane is leaving town, as she's you know she's driving her way over state across state lines. She's imagining in her head all of this dialogue between her boss and Mr. Royal and her sister and, you know, how they'd all be reacting once they find out she's missing. Where does Pat Hitchcock, her fellow secretary back at the office, where does Pat Hitchcock say that Marion's sister Lila works? She says, I called her sister, Mr. Lowry, just like you asked me to at her place of work. And then she mentions the name of the place of work. And she says her sister's just as worried as we are. I know the scene you speak of, and I can hear the dialogue. <laughs> but I can't think of the name of it. You got me on that one. I'm stumped. It's a tongue twister. The Music Maker's Music Store. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> what she says is, I, I called her where she works, the Music Maker's Music Store, you know. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I do have a bonus one. I should have probably put this one in instead of the candy corn one. I've, I just found this one out this afternoon. All right. As you know, Psycho can be connected to other movies that came afterwards. 
like especially because this is based on the I think it was Ed Gein, Ed Gein. Ed Gein, yeah. yeah. So it has connections to like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because that was based on that story and Silence of the Lambs. But there is a movie that Psycho has a connection with through Bernard Herrmann and the musical score. Do you know what that movie is? So it's a horror movie. No, it's just a movie. Oh, okay. It has a, it has a connection to Psycho through the music of Psycho. I got him on this one. This one in earlier. Should oh. <laughs> uh, Mary Poppins. No, no. It's very apropos for this day, May the 4th. Star Wars? Yes. <laughs> Do you want to hear the connection? Of course. Well, some of the, I thought that was John. <laughs> yeah, some, some of the connection here. Okay. So, I, miss- I can't remember the fellow. He was, work- he was working with Bernard Herrmann. And later worked, he was like his assistant or something, and later worked on Star Wars. And in the first cut of Star Wars, before John Williams had done any of the scoring for the movie, they had used all kind of different music, kind of piece things together to show the flow of the movie. And they used a lot of orchestral pieces. And since this, I wish I would wrote his name down, but since he worked with Bernard Herrmann for Psycho, the moment where the Millennium Falcon lands in the Death Star and the uh, stormtroopers walk around inside and then they leave and the hatch opens and Han and them come out. There's like mm-hmm. this three note cue for when they come out of that in that scene. Oh my God, I'm hearing it in my head now. Yes. Now that you say that. Well, John Williams also worked and had a good friendship with Bernard Herman. So when he saw the rough take with all the music, he liked that that was in there, and he said, "You know what? I'm going to use those three same notes." Yeah, I, scene right there. Yeah, I heard that today, and I was like, "No way!" I never knew that. Yeah, so, I never knew that. I don't know if that one counts because that's kind of a bonus one. So, so it counts. It counts. Yeah, all right. Oh, I got a bonus one for you. Okay. Hitchcock purchased the rights to Robert Block's novel Psycho for how much? Eight hundred dollars. Nine thousand. Ah, I wasn't even close, was I? <laughs> Nine thousand <laughs> and Robert Block basically was he was gypped out of any kind of price. He saw no profits after that. From he he never profited from the movie. Oh, or any of the sequels. Money oh, talks. You stumped me, sir. <laughs> no, you stumped me too, so we're even <laughs> I got one. I'm happy with that. I can live with that. <laughs> Uh, well, as always, this has been fantastic. I yeah, had a great time talking about this movie with you. Once more, tell us about the movie Psycho Podcast. Oh, uh, you can listen to my podcast on any of the major podcasting services: Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, you name it. I'm on it. You can also reach me on my social medias. Uh, let's see, on Instagram at the Movie Psycho. I have a Twitter at Psycho Movie. I also have a Facebook, Movie-Psycho, but I really never do anything with Facebook, so I don't know why I bring that up. <laughs> and I have a website, themoviepsycho.com, which you can get in touch with me, but you can also listen to previous episodes as well through that. Go listen to his show. You'll be glad you did. And I'm really looking forward to your Evil Dead 2 episode coming up. <laughs> oh, it's going to take me a while to edit that thing down. <laughs> I'm excited for your next episode and your launching of your new uh, podcast with Davey. Davey, yes. Yes, okay. Yep. Across the pod. Movies across the pod, yes. Davey, 
who has a podcast called uh, Give That 10 Minutes. And he and I have been talking for about, about a year or so. We're biting the bullet and we're doing this. <laughs> so, be great. Those thank you. Those alone will get me to listen to the podcast. <laughs> you got a Boston Yank, you got a native of Liverpool, England, and that, yeah, that is, is a lot a, of dialect right there. <laughs> that is one uh, bone I have to pick with you here. Because <laughs> uh, the last two things I've listened to you on were the introduction to Movies Across the Pod. And I've got your great New England accent and Davy's Liverpudlian accent. <laughs> And then the next thing I listened to of you was the Godfather episode you had with, uh, I think his name was Carlo. Oh, Carlo from the movie Loot. Yes, another right, great. From Puerto Rico, and he's got this amazing accent. And then you have <laughs> me on, and I got nothing. <laughs> I don't even have a good Southern accent. I would say, it depends on who you're talking to, because <laughs> to you, I have an accent. To me, you do, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have a good draw or anything. <laughs> yeah, fake it till you make it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I just thought it was funny that I got to follow all these great accents. <laughs> yeah, that's what podcasting is all about is making the connections. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I'm glad we have made a connection. I I enjoy coming on the show whenever you invite me on the show or whenever you're on my show. It's always great to talk to you, Frank. Anytime you want me to back on, I'll more than happy to do it. Same if you want to be back on my show when I think of something up. <laughs> you know, I don't plan that far ahead. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. I'd love to. I'd love to do both. I think highly of your. You know, I've mentioned you several times in my podcast because I think highly of Silver Screeners and what you do. So that's why I'm excited to hear your next venture. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Thank it's you. Be great. Yeah, and we'll be we'll continue to collaborate. Like I said, Silver Screeners is not going anywhere. Thank God. And neither is Davey's podcast. I'd give that 10 minutes. We're still doing our own individual projects. And this collaboration that we're doing is additional, not a replacement. So, so I'm having you back on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> well, thanks again. And until next time, keep on screening. Take care. Bye, everybody. <laughs> and gosh. <laughs> okay. That was my conversation with Chris. Be sure to give his podcast a listen. I gotta thank him once more, and here's to more collaborations with him in the future. And with that, let's run the final lap of this episode before hitting the showers. It's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 51, was... Which parody of the shower murder scene in Psycho was your favorite? You had Mel Brooks in the comedy High Anxiety which riffs on all things Hitchcockian from Psycho to Vertigo to the Birds. There was little Maggie Simpson watching one too many itchy and scratchy cartoons and beating the shit out of Homer with a mallet in the garage causing him to knock over a can of red paint in The Simpsons. Then you had Chevy Chase sneaking up on his wife, Beverly D'Angelo, in the motel shower with a shampoo bottle as his weapon of choice and her cheeky verbal comeback to his come on. And finally, Janet Lee's daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis herself, on the comedy horror series Scream Queens, as a college dean lathering up under the stream of hot water, only to confront an intruder. On my public Facebook film group, Silver Screeners, same name as this podcast, there were nine votes total, one for Chevy Chase and Vacation, four for Homer Simpson, and four for High Anxiety. On Instagram, Homer Simpson came out on top, and on Twitter, two-thirds of the votes went to The Simpsons, with the remaining third for Chevy Chase. So, in aggregate, it looks like Homer Simpson comes out on top. A big thanks to all of you who voted. I really appreciate the involvement. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook. 
or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974. And if you prefer, you can simply email as well, silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And with that, now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. To reiterate, it does not matter when you send in your answer. No matter what episode you're listening to, no matter how far back, how recent, answer any trivia question at any time. You'll get a movie-related meme with a personalized greeting and a shout-out in the next episode no matter what. And if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, if you go all Sinatra and you're a puppet, a popper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. As always, I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names in case it makes anyone feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. So last time, Kahlo from the podcast The Movie Loot joined me to acknowledge the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. His show is great, by the way. The Movie Loot. And hopefully we'll team up again in the future. The question was, Al Pacino, who plays Michael Corleone in all three Godfather films, and John Cazal, who plays his brother Fredo, reteamed in 1975 for a Sidney Lumet-directed crime drama slash social satire as a pair of dim-witted bank robbers in Brooklyn who hold the employees hostage on a hot and humid August afternoon and proceed to have everything that could possibly go wrong, go wrong. And the answer is... Dog Day Afternoon. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to longtime listener, fellow film buff, and all-around fun person, Mary C. As well as to today's guest Chris from the Movie Psycho Podcast... And to former and future guest, Liz, who joined me a few back to talk about the 1984 and the 2021 versions of Dune. Thanks to all three of you for sending in your guesses. And to anyone else listening, interaction and fun is the name of the game. So please, play this trivia segment anytime you want to. Such as now, with this week's question. In addition to the sequels and the god-awful 1998 remake, there was a prequel series to Psycho called Bates Motel, which aired from 2013 to 2017. Freddie Highmore plays the young Norman Bates, and Vera Farmiga plays his mother Norma. Farmiga is also well-known for her portrayal of real-life paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren in what series of films? Patrick Wilson plays her on-screen husband, Ed. The first was released in 2013 and focuses on the allegedly true story of a haunted farmhouse. The second came out in 2016. It took Lorraine and Ed over to Enfield, England to investigate a supposed haunting there. And 2021 saw the third film in the franchise go in a slightly different direction as it depicts not a haunted house, but instead a murder trial where the defense was demonic possession. Name this series of films that, way back in episode 6, I talked about briefly, along with 1982's Poltergeist. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up in my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that just about does it for episode 51. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. 
And I would be very grateful if you could take just a second to rate or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you're listening to your podcasts. It always really is a help in terms of boosting the show's visibility. And I'm always happy to get honest feedback and open to any suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Psycho's composer, Bernard Herman and his musicians rehearsing the violin screeches, while the cast and crew of Psycho quite literally enjoy the fruits of their labor as they chow down during their lunch break on the cassava melon with Bosco chocolate sauce. Nom 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 n